This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, bringing you everything related to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness and insights as to the causes of it. All that brought to you with the purpose of better informing the general public about mental health issues and reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Bringing you that without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, After not having a new one for you, since two weeks ago, back at it, uh, this podcast pre-recorded for initial airing on October the 19th, 2016. And as we get to this time of year uh, and we talk about mental health, of course we can't help but think that for Sunday night in November, we're going to be turning the clocks back, so we're not going to be in daylight savings time anymore, this will have very significant implications for those who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, otherwise known as winter depression. This is where people who <coughs> live in northern latitudes especially uh, can suffer from depression simply as a result of the shorter days, the lack of sunlight. Uh, so it's not too early. In fact, it's a good time to start thinking about ways to adapt to it. If you own a light box and uh, you have not been using it all spring and summer, time to take it out of the closet, dust it off, make sure the bulbs work correctly, uh, start using it maybe even proactively, but at least start using it right after we turn the clocks back. And by the way, please don't think you can buy a lamp to clinically treat seasonal affective disorder at a normal retail store. Sorry, uh, I don't know what they advertise at Lowe's and Home Depot, but those devices are not certified to treat seasonal affective disorder, otherwise known as SAD. Um, <clears throat> go to Sunlight Technology. Um, or, or northernlightstechnologies.com and uh, there you can find one that's legitimately used and you can buy it for your own use. Um, if you get your doctor to write a letter about your purchase of it, your insurance may even cover part of the cost. I know because I've done it for a couple of patients of mine. Now the other thing that's going to happen that's a big news story, but not necessarily a big mental health news story, 
is right on the heels of turning the clocks back uh, Saturday night over Sunday night, that first weekend in November. The following Tuesday, yes, it's Election Day, and not just Election Day, a presidential Election Day. And uh, no, I am not going to talk about the relative uh, strengths or weaknesses of the candidates, um, any of the four of them, counting all of them. But I am going to talk about what are turning into very significant mental health implications of this current presidential election, which really is an almost unprecedented situation insofar as many, many people in the country feel like, wow, out of 320 some odd million people in this country, you mean to tell me these two are the best we could do? Uh, again, counting the two major party candidates, um, <clears throat> no snub to the two minor party candidates. And polls show an alarmingly high rates of dissatisfaction on both sides of the aisle with their their party's uh, candidate for president. Um, so pretty unique situation. And so the first thing we're going to talk about tonight is how the election is really causing people to get extremely stressed out and how some therapists have been hearing a lot about this in their sessions with their patients and some suggestions as to what to do about it. <clears throat> and believe me, this certainly applies to both sides of the aisle. Uh, the stress about the election is bipartisan, and uh, so therefore the suggestions about how to avoid it or alleviate it are likewise going to apply equally to either side of the aisle. Well, <clears throat> stop reading the news and take up yoga. That is what some therapists in the United States are telling patients stressed out by a nasty presidential campaign in which two very unpopular candidates are in a tight race for the most powerful office in the world. And while on the one hand, some patients are extremely unhappy and distressed with the idea of a Hillary Clinton presidency, many are also very worried and upset and distressed about the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency with his uh, never having held office and uh, the sexual innuendo that has come out about him recently. Uh, but for this article, interviews were conducted with seven therapists across six different states and the District of Columbia. The therapists said their patients have complained of difficulty sleeping, irritability, and heart palpitations. Uh, that's a very telling sign of anxiety if you're having heart palpitations. They said they were advising clients to limit exposure to the news and to take up breathing exercises and yoga to calm down. Uh, one clinical psychologist from just outside Chicago was quoted as saying, 
I've never seen this level of stress and anxiety over an impending election in my 26 years of practicing. She said she had two elderly patients who were worried that their grandchildren would inherit an America in turmoil. <clears throat> and one compared Trump to the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Um, and that person who made that comment to the therapist was a World War II veteran. Uh, Clinton has accused Trump of racism and sexism, and her campaign frequently calls him unhinged and unfit for the presidency, saying he has a volatile temperament that could endanger United States national security, thus uh, stoking fears on the left of a Trump presidency. Trump, in turn, has said that Clinton is a corrupt, lifelong politician who should be jailed for her use of a private email server without official approval while she was Secretary of State. Uh, <clears throat> she was found to have uh, committed legal improprieties but thought not to be prosecutable by the FBI. Furthermore, the WikiLeaks release of Democratic Party emails uh, has further exposed improprieties on that side of the aisle, thus stoking anxieties of a potential Clinton presidency and her fitness to serve on the right. Now, Phyllis Muskin, a professor of psychology at Columbia University Medical Center, said the anxiety among his patients reminded him of that which he saw in the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 Al-Qaeda attacks and the crashing to Earth of the first space station Skylab in 1979, which had people around the world worried they could be hit by falling space debris. Things where, for everybody, the sense of control is gone. Think about that, that the anxiety people are showing in this therapist's practice about the election compares to that shown after the attacks of September 11th. That's remarkable how much people are getting upset about this. Adding to the anxiety is the fact that the two candidates in the November 8th, sorry, November 8th upcoming election are the most unpopular in modern U.S. history. Uh, this article quotes these following statistics. They vary from time to time, but it said that some 57.5% uh, of Americans have an unfavorable view of Trump and nearly 54% have an unfavorable view of Clinton, according to Reuters' Ipsos polling. Uh, <clears throat> I find even more remarkable are the statistics within each party. In other words, the large percentage of Republicans who have an unfavorable view of Trump and the large percentage of Democrats who have an unfavorable view of Clinton. Uh, she is seen as dishonest and untrustworthy. Uh, he is seen as a uh, bully who is racist, sexist, xenophobic, 
and so on. So neither am exactly garnering a lot of support within or outside their parties. Now there isn't data available to quantify this election-related anxiety, but the therapist's anecdotes give some insight into the state of the national psyche. Uh, a clinical psychologist from Connecticut said the election was also on the minds of all her patients. And she said, I can't think of a person I've talked to who does not feel anxious about this. And <clears throat> therapists also aren't immune to these anxieties. That same therapist said, I can't say to my patients, oh my God, it's making me a wreck. But she can sit and empathize. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll have more discussion on this and other mental health issues when we return. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how many, many people are stressed out by the uh, strong politics surrounding the upcoming presidential election Therapists are seeing the severely increased anxiety among their patients, specifically about the election, and the advice is to tune out and do yoga. Well, uh, Lynn Bufka, the Executive Director for Practice Research and Policy at the American Psychological Association, said one patient was concerned that much of the criticism of Clinton was just because she was a woman, and this had affected how the patient viewed herself. What does this mean for her as a woman? Have things really changed that much for her in terms of what she can do? 
And Trump has said of Clinton, who would be America's first female president, that she lacks a presidential look and has called other female critics fat, pig, or bimbo. Um, Bufka said Latino and Muslim patients are also anxious about Trump's proposals to build a wall along the Mexican border and to temporarily suspend immigration by Muslims. Her advice, turn off the news feed. Stop reading everything if it just gets you more stressed. Well, to be fair, to be balanced, uh, on the other side of the aisle, a lot of people are worried about Clinton's uh, missteps with using her personal email in an unsecure way when it came to national security issues. And uh, there are lots of lingering concerns about her and uh, her personal life and her foundation and handling international relations, hand, handling finances, her coziness with Wall Street, um, so on and so forth. So there are a lot of things about a potential Clinton presidency that make Republicans very uh, anxious and stressed about the prospect of her being in office. So no matter what side you're on, the answer, I think, is the same. If you're one of those people for whom the election coverage and weighing all these issues is severely adding to your stress, uh, on the order of magnitude of something like the attacks of September 11 or Skylab coming crashing to the earth like that other therapist said, then I think it is very, very good advice. Again, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, stop immersing yourself in the coverage. And really, I, I think this is very good advice, and I've often given this advice to my patients who are prone to severe anxiety, uh, the ones who suffer from post-traumatic stress, from having been in combat or having been assaulted or having been in a fire or flood or an earthquake, there are certain news stories that these folks should not watch. Like, for example, um, news footage and coverage of Hurricane Matthew or, or before that, Sandy, or before that, Katrina. Uh, this is going to severely exacerbate someone's anxiety. Or if it's combat-related trauma, don't watch coverage of the conflicts that are ongoing in Afghanistan, the fight against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Um, and so as far as this current election cycle, I definitely agree with tuning out, turn it off. Um, I'm a strong advocate of something very, very low-tech and old-fashioned, print media. And I'll explain this. In order to stay informed, okay, um, because certainly by saying, you know, shut it off, don't watch it, don't listen to it, no one would advocate just, you know, putting your head in the sand and ignoring the issues. No, of course, uh, everyone should stay well informed, and especially because uh, you, you want to be well informed to cast an intelligent vote on the no November the 8th, and hopefully you, all of you will. But in order to avoid the stress... Uh, the electronic media just presents it in way too concentrated a way. On television, the news shows uh, just constantly go over the same issues 
ad nauseum. They show the same uh, footage of the candidates presenting their views and attacking their opponents ad nauseum. And then you, for good measure, have uh, whatever network you're watching has their talking head experts commenting on the candidate or the other and opposing experts screaming at each other and going on and on. And, folks, it does not matter what network you're talking about. It could be Fox if you're thinking of uh, pro-Trump, anti-Hillary coverage, or it could be CNN if you're thinking anti-Trump, pro-Hillary coverage. It matters not. It's the same on either side of the aisle. Just don't watch it. Okay, so that's television. Then there's the Internet. Well, while that may not be as bad as television because it just doesn't keep going and going, repeating the same thing, it is also somewhat endless because as soon as you look at one article or watch one video on a particular website, here's a link to another one, and you follow that, and you go to the next link and the next, and it just keeps going and going and going. If you read the article in the newspaper, you're informed about what happened, and then the article is finished. You are done. It does not keep going on and on and on and on. So in my opinion, this is the best way to still be informed but limit the intensity uh, of the exposure to the stressful news and, and therefore minimize your anxiety. And these therapists uh, who recorded for the article also suggested yoga to help with the stress. This, of course, is an excellent idea. Uh, yoga has been found to be an excellent way to reduce stress from, from any cause or any reason. So uh, I highly agree with that suggestion as well. So there you have it. Um, hopefully you can take that advice if you are one of those folks who is very stressed and distressed about the upcoming election. And if you are able to take that advice, hopefully it will help. Next on Psychiatry Today, we're going to stick with a somewhat political aspect of mental health, only insofar is that in that a survey on the amount of empathy in all the countries in the world was done, and we're going to talk about where the United States ranks on that scale and see what implications that has. Um, <clears throat> a first-of-its-kind study done at Michigan State University, ranks nations by empathy, puts the United States at number seven. So we've made the top ten, which is quite good. But at number seven, we come in behind countries ranging from Peru to Korea to even Saudi Arabia? Yes. Now, while a top ten finish isn't bad, Michigan State University's William Chopik, uh, lead author of the study, notes that the psychological states of Americans have been changing in recent decades, leading to a larger focus on the individual and less on others. Hmm. The article doesn't mention this. Is this perhaps evidence of the 
stereotypical inward-looking millennial. Who knows? Well, back to Dr. Tropic's research. He says, these changes might ultimately cause us to leave our close relationships behind. People are struggling more than ever to form meaningful close relationships. So sure, the United States is seventh on the list, but we could see that position rise or fall depending on how our society changes in the next 20 to 50 years. The researchers analyzed the data from an online survey on empathy completed by more than 104,000 people from around the world. The survey measured people's compassion for others and their tendency to imagine others' point of view. That's the core of the characteristic of empathy. Countries with small sample sizes were excluded, including most nations in Africa. All told, only 63 countries were ranked in the study. Ecuador was the most empathetic country, followed in order by Saudi Arabia, Peru, Denmark, United Arab Emirates, Korea, the United States, Taiwan, Costa Rica, and Kuwait. Chopik said he was surprised that three countries from the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Kuwait, ranked so highly in empathy considering the long history of aggression and wars with other countries in that region. And I would also add the long history of poor human rights records in terms of lack of personal freedoms, uh, oppression of women's rights, and so on. But <clears throat> that could be because the study did not distinguish between feeling empathy toward people in other countries versus people in one's own country. The least empathetic country was Lithuania. In fact, seven of the ten least empathetic countries were in Eastern Europe. Now, the article does not speculate as to why this is the case, but uh, my own thought is perhaps since uh, the folks in these former Soviet satellite republics have it uh, such a difficult life for themselves and struggling with difficult economies, and in the case of Belarus, struggling with a Soviet-style dictatorship, uh, that their situation is so dire, uh, their empathic reserves are pretty tapped. The study was published online in the Journal of Cross-Cultural Psychology, and that was published uh, on October the 14th. So, interesting as far as, you know, what implications that has, um, and it was co-authored by someone from the University of Chicago and also from Indiana University, thus giving the uh, study team a very distinctly Midwestern U.S. flavor. All right, well, we will continue our discussion of the implications of this study when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend 
but needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right now we're talking about a study showing the ranking of 63 countries in the world, not all of the countries, uh, a good many of them, as far as the level of empathy in their populace. And we came in number seven, so we made the top ten, the United States, I'm saying. Now, previous research by some of the co-authors suggested that American college students have become less empathetic over a 20-year span. That study was done in 2011. Potential factors included the explosion of social media, increases in violence and bullying, changing parenting and family practices, and increasing expectations of success as possible reasons why uh, young people were less empathetic. This latest study is the first to look at empathy on a country-by-country level. And while it only grabbed a snapshot of what empathy looks like at this very moment, cultures are constantly changing. And this is particularly true of the United States, which has experienced very large changes in things like parenting practices and values. People may portray the United States as this empathetic and generous giant, but that might be changing. Interesting to see uh, this uh, research and what implications that it has. And, uh, you know, to tie this in with the first article we talked about tonight, I wonder if, depending on who wins the election in less than a month from now, whether that will further change anything in terms of uh, the values uh, that we have as Americans and how we show them to the rest of the world and what policies we pursue and how empathetic we are and to whom and under what circumstances. 
All right. Well, next up on psychiatry today, I am going to continue to focus on an issue that is near and dear to my heart as someone whose medical profession is to care for the brain, and that is the growing liberalization of attitudes about smoking marijuana, which uh, I've made very, very clear any number of times on this podcast that I strongly disagree with based on its well-documented toxicity to the brain. And um, as far as I'm concerned, there should not be any need for any discussion or debate as to the harm it does uh, for the infrequent casual user. Perhaps that's arguable, but for the regular user or the abuser, uh, the jury definitely is in. And here is another study uh, talking about the dangers of early marijuana use. This study shows that early marijuana use is associated with abnormal brain function and lower IQ. And scientists in London and Ontario have discovered this. Marijuana is the most commonly used illegal substance in the world. Previous studies have suggested that frequent marijuana users, especially those who begin at a young age, are at a higher risk for cognitive dysfunction and psychiatric illness, including depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. A scientist at Lawson Health Research Institute at uh, Western University is a Canadian leader in studying both mood and anxiety disorders and the effects of marijuana. And um, <clears throat> in this research, uh, many youth in their program use marijuana heavily. And despite past research, they believe it improves their psychiatric conditions because they say it makes them feel better, albeit momentarily. Now, <clears throat> for this reason, researchers decided to study the effects of marijuana and depression on psychiatric symptoms, brain function, and cognitive function, which refers to things such as memory and attention and concentration and executive function. Uh, the research team recruited young people in four groups, those with depression who were not marijuana users, those with depression who were frequent marijuana users, frequent marijuana users without depression, and healthy individuals who were not marijuana users. In addition, participants were later divided into youth who started using marijuana before the age of 17 and those who began using it later or not at all. The participants underwent psychiatric, cognitive, and IQ testing as well as brain scanning. The study found no evidence that marijuana use improved depressive symptoms. Again, I will say, repeat that. No evidence that marijuana improved symptoms of depression. And there was no difference in psychiatric symptoms between those with depression 
who used marijuana and those with depression who did not use marijuana. That's interesting and perhaps somewhat reassuring that the marijuana use didn't seem to worsen symptoms of depression, but honestly, in order to uh, confirm that uh, somewhat superficially reassuring finding, the study would have had to have been done a different way to specifically screen for the possibility that marijuana use would worsen depressive symptoms. The study was not designed to look at that specific question. In addition, results showed differences in brain function among the four groups in areas of the brain that relate to reward processing and motor control. The use of marijuana did not correct the brain function deficits of depression and in some regions made them worse. Of additional interest, those participants who used marijuana from a young age had highly abnormal brain function in areas related to visual spatial processing, memory, self-referential activity, and reward processing. The study found that early marijuana use was also associated with lower IQ scores. These findings suggest that using marijuana does not correct the brain abnormalities or symptoms of depression, and using it from an early age may have an abnormal effect not only on brain function, but also on IQ. With past research suggesting a genetic role between marijuana use and depression, researchers also conducted genetic testing on participants. They discovered that a certain genetic variation of the gene that directs the production of brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF, um, you can think of BDNF as a protein that helps to protect and nourish and improve the growth of existing and new brain cells. Uh, that this, a variation of this gene, this very important protein, was found in greater proportion in youth who used marijuana from an early age. And again, BDNF is involved in brain development and memory, among other processes. This was a novel finding suggesting that this genetic variation in the BDNF gene may predispose youth to early marijuana use. But the study had a small number of participants, so the genetic results are therefore tentative and need to be verified with a larger study with more participants. Regardless, the major take-home point is uh, the negative impact on brain function and especially IQ. Uh, this hopefully will add to the reams and reams of documentation of the detrimental effects of marijuana. Um, I freely admit it is unlikely to stem the overwhelming tide um, in this country that uh, is providing more and more momentum toward uh, decriminalization efforts of marijuana and even legalization of 
uh, possession of small amounts for recreational use, and uh, most of all, legal, uh, state-sanctioned, uh, and state tax collecting dispensaries of uh, state uh, dispensaries where people grow and sell their own marijuana. Um, <clears throat> you know, people on the other side of this issue say this will take uh, drug dealers and drug cartels out of the picture and therefore reduce crime and save lives. Well, They'll just move into other chemicals. So, um, and, and the, I don't buy that argument. Regardless of it, I think it's important to maintain the effort on documenting the negative impact of marijuana on the young people's brain, especially, and to make sure the public get that message. It is uh, not the benign chemical it is thought to be by many, many people. All right, now next up on Psychiatry Today, uh, regular and long-time listeners to this podcast will know that I also feel very passionately uh, about the severe negative impact on children and adolescents of bullying, or another way to say it other than that word, which a lot of people find objectionable, is peer victimization. And uh, you're no doubt familiar if you've heard this podcast for any length of time that I feel a lot needs to be done to prevent and combat the impact of bullying on children. It starts with parents. It starts with school administrators and and teachers. And uh, we're going to consider a new study on the impact of peer victimization in schools. But... uh, since we're just about to take a commercial break, we'll do that after we get back from that. So that and more mental health-related news when we come back. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Now, again, we're talking about peer victimization in schools. Researchers estimate that as many as 75% of children and adolescents report experiencing some sort of peer victimization. Three-quarters of all kids and adolescents with 10 to 15% experiencing more severe and prolonged victimization. Two new studies explore victimization by peers to shed light on who is victimized and the repercussions of such actions. The studies are particularly pertinent with increased attention on bullying. This includes mandates to report instances of bullying as well as efforts to develop prevention programs and interventions that are effective and developmentally appropriate. Both studies suggest that earlier interventions are more likely to be successful in helping address peer victimization and its outcomes. Peer victimization is defined as being on the receiving end of an intentional act of aggression by a peer of a similar age that is perceived by the victim as harmful. Overt victimization involves behavior such as hitting, pushing, and kicking, while relational victimization is more covert. For example, being the subject of a vicious rumor or being excluded intentionally from an activity. This relational victimization would include cyberbullying, such as spreading negative comments or bad rumors via email, text, or social media platform. The first study, which analyzed research on peer victimization in 17 countries, that's uh, a very widespread look. Um, I commend them for looking at that. We're not just talking about the United States, 17 countries found that both girls and boys experience relational peer victimization, but boys experience more overt victimization. That study was done at the University of Alabama and the University of Connecticut. So there you see the typical pattern. Boys are more likely to engage in physical aggression compared to girls, which are more likely to... Uh, engage in relational victimization, that is spreading rumors or um, social exclusion. The second study, which looked at second to sixth grade students in the United States only, found that being victimized by peers alters the development of children's stress responses. That old statement alone is a very serious consequence. That research was carried out at North Dakota State University, the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. In the first study, researchers examined the degree to which these two forms of victimization, relational and overt, represent separate phenomena. This included the degree to which each form is uniquely related to symptoms such as depression and anxiety, as well as to aggressive behavior 
and receiving support from other peers. The study was a meta-analysis and it looked at 135 studies on victimization involving 190,052 children and adolescents ages 4 through 17 in 17 countries over 20 years. Researchers found a large degree of overlap between the two forms of victimization. That is, victims of one form are likely to experience the other form as well, which the study's authors suggest means the two forms should be considered in relation to one another. Because resources are limited, it's important for policymakers and practitioners who create and implement interventions to understand the differences across forms of victimization as well as the ways they are related. There is an increase in relational forms of victimization as children age and they start using electronic media. So it's important for interventions to address both forms because relational victimization is aimed at damaging another's relations with peers and social status. It would be beneficial for interventions to include relationship skills such as communication and problem-solving skills. Yet the researchers found differences when they examined the relation between each form of victimization and various indicators of adjustment. Relational victimization, experienced by boys and girls at similar levels, was related to higher levels of relational aggression and internalizing problems, such as symptoms of depression and of anxiety, as well as lower levels of received pro-social behavior, like peer support and help, called pro-social support. The older the student, the more being the target of rumors and exclusion was related to an increase in symptoms of depression and of anxiety. Adolescence is a time when friendships become particularly important. As such, Victimization that's intended to damage relationships is especially painful and associated with higher levels of depression and anxiety. The study also found that children and adolescents who experience higher levels of overt victimization report higher levels of overt aggression and lower levels of pro-social support and exhibit more externalizing behavior such as delinquency, impulsivity, and conduct problems. The link between overt victimization and behaviors such as impulsivity and delinquency also increases as children get older. Although it cannot be said that one causes the other, the links among overt victimization, overt aggression, and externalizing problems may lead to more serious risk-taking behaviors and delinquency. For this reason, the earlier there is intervention in incidents of overt aggression and other externalizing behavior, the better. In fact, some re researchers conceptualize peer aggression as a group phenomenon, which means intervention efforts should include not only victims, but perpetrators and bystanders too. 
Similarly, the links among relational victimization, internalizing problems, and a lack of social support also raise concerns and warranted focused intervention. The authors note that it is particularly troubling that across development, the relation between lower levels of pro-social support and both forms of victimization becomes stronger. That is, older adolescents who report victimization are more likely to also report lower levels of pro-social support. In the second study, researchers looked at how the development of children's stress responses is affected when they are the targets of peer victimization. How children respond to stress in their social relationships has been shown to play an important role in the development of mental health problems such as depression. Children fare better when they can control their reactions and actively address problems, responses that are referred to as effortful engagement, looking at their thoughts, feelings, and actions. These include strategies such as finding solutions to problems, ways to think about problems in a positive light, and adaptive ways to regulate emotions. In contrast, when children avoid stressors or when their reactions are largely out of their control, the risk of emotional problems increases. As children grow older, their adaptive responses to stress rise and their maladaptive responses decline. However, this study of 636 American second to sixth graders from a variety of backgrounds found that early and continuing exposure to peer victimization disrupted the development of healthy stress response systems in children. Early peer victimization sensitizes youth to stress by interfering with the development of effective coping and fostering maladaptive responses to stress. Authors found that effortful engagement responses to stress typically increased steadily between third and sixth grades. <clears throat> effortful disengagement and involuntary responses typically decreased between second and sixth grades, although the rate of decline slowed around fourth or fifth grade. Effortful disengagement responses are controlled responses that are directed away from a problem and include avoiding the stressful situation or denying that there's a problem. Involuntary responses can include uncontrollable engagement with a problem that is ruminating or uncontrollable disengagement from a problem that is feeling numb and unable to think about it. However, this pattern of adaptive stress response development was significantly less pronounced when children experienced relatively high levels of peer victimization in the second grade. Furthermore, although children generally experienced less victimization with age, for those children who were steadily victimized or who were victimized more frequently, adaptive stress response development was hindered. Further highlighting the relationships between peer victimization and children's developing uh, stress response, the study found that when peer victimization decreased during elementary school, girls' effortful engagement rose significantly and their involuntary and disengagement fell. These findings point to the need for effective interventions during elementary school years to combat peer victimization and programs designed to help children who've experienced repeated peer victimization learn how to effectively cope with stress. 
and they point to middle childhood and early adolescence as a critical period for implementing programs that foster socio-emotional learning skills before long-term trajectories of peer victimization or maladaptive stress responses have been established. For adolescents with a history of early and prolonged adversity from peers, programs should bolster the development of adaptive stress responses, problem-solving, and coping with stress. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up with that. I hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until the next time we get together. And uh, hopefully you found the information that I presented to you interesting and informative. And I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, But again, if you are not able to have a wonderful and stress-free week till next time, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.